I'm Alicia Michalisic-Kurtz, and welcome to the final episode of Real Talk for 2020, featuring a story that's perfect for going into the new year from our dear friend and emergency medicine physician, Dr. Taylor Nichols. Looking back on the dumpster fire that has been 2020 for the majority of people living in this world, we can likely agree that, if nothing else, this year has challenged each of us in many ways. Whether it was losing a loved one or suffering illness yourself, experiencing a huge change or even loss of your job, learning to navigate the frustrations of Zoom school, postponing a major life event like a retirement party or your wedding, or being present for the birth of an important child in your life. We have all missed out on our own unique list of things that are important to us. And the underlying theme in most of what we've gone through is this. All of us have felt isolated, alone, separated from our loved ones and our friends, and even from our usual encounters with complete strangers. And perhaps more than most of us realized, it turns out that these day-to-day interactions are actually the life force that makes us feel human. The beauty of human interaction, of laughing together, crying together, smiling at one another, touching each other, these are the things that make us feel whole and loved and connected. And that connection, that social part of our nature is literally vital to our survival and well-being. Since the beginning of human existence, we have formed tribes communities of people that experience life alongside one another, that support and encourage each other, that carry us through the tough times, and that we, in return, serve when they are in need. This tribal nature, it's literally written into our DNA. It's at the very fabric of our being. And above all of the random trials that COVID-19 and the entirety of 2020 have brought us, in my mind, this separation, this ideological and social and physical distance between us, this is the thing that has made 2020 so friggin' tough. Looking to 2021, it seems there is definitely a new sense of hope out there, a proverbial light at the end of this tunnel for many reasons. But honestly, I can't help but keep thinking about how that tunnel is still pretty long. The reality is that even though we have a vaccine and the end of this feels within our reach, we will likely continue struggling through this separateness for many months to come. And who knows when we'll actually be able to have a conversation with somebody that we're ideologically opposed to without it being insanely heated, really divisive, and frankly, hurtful. I mean, heck, I just want to know when I'll be able to go out in public without a mask and smile at a person that I don't know as I open the door for them at a grocery store. Wouldn't that be awesome? So realizing that the reality I want back is still a solid distance into the future. What can I hang my hope on for 2021 right now? I was reflecting on that question recently when I stumbled upon Taylor's story. Taylor's story was recorded at our very last in-person Real Talk this year, just before the coronavirus pandemic truly hit us in the U.S. And in his story, 
there is a message that really struck me right now. The idea of that butterfly effect. That our actions, the things we do, however routine or mundane or normal they might feel for us, can have fantastically large impacts on the lives of others, both positive and negative, and in ways that we will most often never actually get to know. Maybe this is the message for us exiting 2020 and looking for a year that feels different than this terrible one that we've all just barely emotionally survived. Maybe instead of lamenting our distance from the leading players in our lives, we should shift our focus a little bit to the downstream effects of the actions we take, to the people not on the main pages of our life's story, but to the stories and the people in the footnotes. This is Taylor's story. A pediatric emergency physician was once telling me about a book that he was writing, about his experiences in the emergency department, about the lives saved and all of the crazy stories from over his career. He talked about how he had followed up on some of the patients with more remarkable stories. He mentioned that once, more than a decade after saving a young girl's life, he had run into that girl's father in line at the grocery store and that the father enthusiastically told him about all that his daughter had accomplished since the doctor had saved her life. I could see the pride on that physician's face as he told me this story, reflecting momentarily on the thought of that encounter. I asked him if he had included these follow-up stories in the book. He paused thoughtfully and remarked that he had not, but said maybe he would have to add some footnotes. I asked about these footnotes because for the majority of my life, my story has not just been mine alone, but a footnote in so many other stories. A footnote in the story of a pediatric neurosurgeon, a footnote in the story of a pediatric intensivist, a footnote in the story of the amazing nurses who took care of me in the ICU and throughout my recovery, a footnote in the story of the first responders who resuscitated me as my brain was herniating, trying to force its way out of my skull and driving my respiratory drive towards agonal. At seven years old, I had already had worsening headaches for over a year. Multiple trips to the pediatrician's office with varying diagnoses. Round after round of antibiotics for sinus infections or different antihistamine medications and nasal sprays for allergies. NSAIDs and naps for migraines. Eventually, early in the year in the third grade, my teacher recognized that it wasn't drawing within the lines anymore. My handwriting was getting worse. I remember being called to the front of the classroom so he could ask me over and over to dot my I's and cross my T's. They were all askew. I wasn't lining up the letters anymore. I wasn't even writing on the lines. He recognized that something was wrong and he called my parents. And of course, I didn't know this at the time, but they told me after the fact. At that point, I was still just an active kid trying to do active kid things, but I was just getting stopped in my tracks by these headaches. Not long after the call from that teacher, my parents were out of town for a wedding and my younger brother and I were staying with a babysitter. On Sunday morning, I woke up vomiting, just woke up with a headache that I couldn't kick and I couldn't keep anything down. I have this distinct memory of laying in bed with a bowl as a vomit basin while the babysitter called my parents, who then, of course, immediately raced home. My mom 
took me to an urgent care nearby where the physician said that this was probably just another bad migraine and that laying down and taking a nap in a dark room and sleeping might just help relieve the headache. But she also mentioned that she was going to refer me back to my pediatrician urgently to get a CT scan or an MRI as soon as possible. Of course, at the time, she didn't realize how right her intuition would have been. My younger brother was five and a half years old at the time, and he and I were inseparable. When my mom and I got back from urgent care, I did as instructed and went to take a nap in a dark room and must have been asleep for a long enough time that my brother came in to wake me up. No more napping, time to get up and play. Instead, he found me laying unconscious in my room, slowly gasping for breaths, something that I now know to be part of what is referred to as Cushing's triad. My dad performed rescue breaths, my mom called 911, and I was rushed to the hospital. A CT scan showed massive hydrocephalus, a large tumor in my cerebellum blocking the normal flow of cerebral spinal fluid from around my brain and down my spinal cord. It required an emergency ventriculostomy, or a drain placed into one of my ventricles in my brain to gradually release the pressure that had built up. Three more operations to remove the tumor and then to place a VP shunt. And two weeks in the ICU later, and I was relearning to walk down the halls of UCSF. Eventually, I was able to finish a lap outside the hospital, and I was on my way home. The next step of my recovery journey ahead of me, and an entirely new determination. For years, I hated to tell that story. Hated it. I tried to avoid or shy away from the questions as much as possible. Not so much because the experience was traumatizing or that I felt deeply uncomfortable discussing it, but because I didn't want that one story, that one moment in time to define my entire life. Leaving the hospital just shy of my eighth birthday, all I ever wanted to do was to be able to go back to school and be a normal kid again. I didn't want to carry these scars. I didn't want to be seen as special or different or require some sort of special treatment. And so I spent the next decade and a half trying hard to hide from rather than embrace the ways that this experience had changed the course of my journey. And yet, how could it have not? In that hospital bed, I decided that I wanted to become a physician. I felt that there was no greater gift that one person could give another than to dedicate their life to save others. Just as so many people had worked hard to save mine and created another footnote in their stories, I hoped to be able to make that footnote worthwhile. The thought of those footnotes is what drove me. The perpetuation of impact of saving or possibly changing one person's life opens the possibility of that person going on to accomplish great things, of having a positive impact on the world. Like threads across time, our stories stretch so far beyond ourselves. With each footnote, those stories continue to branch and grow. And how many footnotes do those pediatric neurosurgeon and that intensivist, those nurses and those first responders have in their stories? Think about that for a moment. Imagine the scale. Medicine has given me the incredible gift of a second chance at life. But I feel that I'm even luckier now as an emergency physician to become more than just a footnote in their stories and to begin to have footnotes of my own. Footnotes in a story that I hope 
will one day be worthy of writing a book about when I approach the end of my own career. And as with the pediatric emergency physician, the value of the stories in that book would never be about me or my journey. The story is the footnotes, the strands that, when woven together, form the quilt of our collective humanity. Thank you. In the darker depths of my frustrations with 2020, the message in Taylor's story truly resonates with me. While I cannot necessarily have the interactions that I'm used to with the people that mean the most to me, I can always try to live in such a way that those I do come in contact with are better for having interacted with me that day. The interconnectedness of humans, of course it's beautiful when we consider the love and happiness that we get from the people closest to us, but it's all the more incredible to realize that this connection extends so much further than our own circle. We are all a part of this interwoven and tangled endless web of humanity. We all leave traces of our life in the footnotes of other people's stories, just like they leave them in ours. I often think about the people who have shaped my life, the teachers, the friends, the named characters that were an obvious role in my story. But it's less often that I realize the impact of the people that don't touch me directly, but whose work, dedication, attitudes, choices have absolutely affected me. For example, as a female doctor, I can name my own personal mentors and the icons that I look up to for sure, but there are hundreds and thousands of other women that came before me whose names I will never know, who directly paved the way to allow me to do the work that I do now. And there's an equal number of men who in their own way were open-minded and forward-thinking enough to help those women do it. And while I will never know those people by name or the specific challenges that they faced, the moments that they struggled or the failures that they felt, I am still living directly in the path of their success. And what about you? Whose story are you a footnote in? And who are the people that may not know it, but have heavily influenced the path and the outcomes of your own life in both good and bad ways? And what about the stories that you're influencing in your life's work? What are the footnotes that you're writing out there in the world? Are they things that you're proud of? Or do you feel like you have some work to do? Maybe that's the message for all of us as we gear up for another probably not so idyllic year. That no, we cannot just go back to life as normal. And yes, we are going to continue to feel alone and separated in ways that we do not like. But if we all try to be the best that we can be, to be the most generous, the most patient, the most forgiving and understanding, to be better at listening instead of just doubling down on our own views, to be more concerned about being kind and looking at the greater good rather than being really upset about something simple and kind of stupid like whether or not you feel like wearing a mask in public. If we all individually worked to be our own best version of humanity in 2021, how long, how beautiful, how awesome could the footnotes of our lives be then? 
thank you to Taylor Nichols for sharing his story with us, to Marco Gonzalez, our sound engineer, and to all of you for listening. Happy New Year. I'm Alicia, and this is Real Talk. Want to connect with the Real Talk podcast or record your story with us? Start at realtalk.transistor.fm, or you can follow the link in the show notes for this episode.